So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus who was taken up From you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. What an amazing account, Lord. Will you help us to never take this for granted, what, what took place on that day in real time, in real history? And now, Lord, will you help us as we look into the doctrines surrounding this from your word? Will you teach us? Will you encourage us? Will you help us indeed to hail that day? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. We said it earlier. Some of you have said that or words to that effect hundreds of times. Maybe for some of you this is a new creed that you're not used to. I spoke with someone yesterday that that said they weren't familiar with the Apostles' Creed and I was explaining it a little bit to them. And it is an ancient creed. And as we are looking at it here in our church, because we use it uh, in our worship, not every Sunday, we have been recently as we've been studying it, but uh, as, as we uh, use it periodically, we are not studying a creed, we are studying the Word of God that that creed is based upon. Uh, we... We don't say that it was, it's inspired, uh, that it was really written by the apostles, but the doctrines that are reflected in it, there is no question that they are based squarely upon the Word of God. So today, we, we, have, we have come to the point where um, Jesus has finished his state of humiliation, if you will. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we, we talked about that. His life 
uh, here on this earth and his death on the cross. And I, I love, I hope you, you caught the words in the anthem, uh, look ye saints, the sight is glorious, see the man of sorrows now. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, he was the man of sorrows. Look at him now from the fight. Return victorious. Every knee to him shall bow. And that's where we are in the creed. His humiliation is behind him. As, as, as last week we, we saw him put in the grave. He really died. And now we see him walk out of that same grave. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4. For I delivered to you as of, this is the Apostle Paul, as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, why does Paul say that the death and resurrection of Christ on the third day were of first importance? He doesn't say, I'm, I'm telling you something that, that's important. He says, this this is it. This is at the, at the beginning of first importance. It is the first in line. It is the foundation of our, our faith. Well, let's break it down. It is not just because Christ died. Heroes die all the time. And it's not as though there is no value when a hero dies. But this is different. The purpose of his death was different. It wasn't to pay for his, his own sin. It was for us. It was for us. It was for others, for his people. And so there is infinite value in that death. But if he had stayed there, trips to Israel, people would go and visit a grave, just like they do other leaders of faith or movements. They would say, yeah, that's... That's where he's buried. They might even say this is a special place because of that. But instead of that, we celebrate an empty tomb. We celebrate that he's, he's not there, he's risen. And in some ways, it's, it's kind of funny when you think about it. We're going all the way over there to say, yep, he's not there. He's, he's risen. <laughs> it's empty. That's what they said. But that's what we 
we celebrate. It's of first importance. And let me, let me give you four uh, quick reasons why the resurrection is of first importance. First of all, even as Paul said here, and he said it concerning the death and him being buried and being raised on the third day, it fulfilled Old Testament prophecy about Christ. Don't underestimate that. What, what happened was what the Old Testament said was going to happen, and that means that's what God said was going to happen. And then it happened. It fulfilled that. Psalm 16:10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Is that talking about David? Who, who's it talking about? No. In, in, in Acts, Peter is saying that's talking about Christ. That was a prediction of Christ. Now, notice what it says. You won't let the Holy One see corruption. Now, in Jesus' day, it was a a common Jewish view that corruption of the body after one was buried kicked in on the fourth day. Do you remember when Jesus resuscitated Lazarus? Do you remember what Martha said? Martha, the practical one? Uh, You want us to move the stone? You know what? It's going to stink. Of course, the King James, which I love, he stinketh. You know, it's... It's the only time I quote the King James because I like that. But that was, that was the thought, was that the corruption set in. Even by those standards, Jesus was already out of the grave. He did not see corruption as he was raised on the third day. Secondly, in terms of the resurrection, it deals with the last and the greatest enemy 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, we know that in our day, we're still, we still face death here in terms of physical death. But in terms of separation from God forever, he has defeated that. And there will come a time when that will ring true because physical death will be no longer. Next week, we're going to talk about him coming back and what he's going to do when he gets back here. Now, some would say, well, you know what? I, if if I, we ask the question, who's the greatest enemy? Who's the worst enemy? Many of us would, would probably say, well, Satan. Satan's the worst enemy of God's people. What about of mankind? It's death. What's the greatest fear? If you, if you took a poll of all of mankind of all time, it would be overwhelming. That's the worst enemy, the greatest enemy. Physical death and separation from God forever. What Jesus did when he conquered death... <coughs> 
is he took its sting away. We still face it, but it's nothing like it was, and there will come a time where it won't be at all. Not just the sting taken away, death itself will be no longer. Thirdly, in terms of the resurrection, it was necessary in order to be an apostle. Acts chapter 1. I'll just remind you of what it is, and you, you may remember this. This was when they were trying to figure out who are we going to get to replace uh, Judas? Who's going to replace Judas? And so uh, the answer was, uh, well, let's find somebody. Well, let's find somebody who has seen the Lord after he was resurrected. That was, that was what was necessary in order to be appointed. You had to be a witness to the resurrection. And that was the case for all of the apostles. Of course, the one unique one is the apostle Paul, who, whether he saw Jesus earlier or not, we don't know, but he wasn't a believer at that time if he did see him. But he did see him on the road to Damascus. It was different, but he qualified in that way. And then fourthly, belief in the resurrection is the basis for salvation. Obviously, I didn't put these in order of importance unless it's ascending order. They are all essential. But in Romans 10, it says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So uh, all we have to do is look at that and say, okay, well, it's good to confess that Jesus is Lord. That's absolutely essential. But not only is that essential, we have to believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead or calling him Lord is just words. Those two go together. That's why in the Apostles' Creed that has so few words when you think about it, it's not a big theology book. There's so few words, so carefully chosen. It doesn't cover every doctrine, but it does hit these essentials. To confess he's Lord and believe that, that God has raised him from the dead. So the third day he rose again from the dead, and then it goes on and says he ascended into heaven, the ascension. And I read to you earlier from Acts chapter 1. Let me just highlight the, the main part of the ascension. And when he had said these things, they were looking on. He was lifted up. A cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. We'll go into that part next week about his coming back and what he's going to do when he comes back. But so, so they're there. Now, in terms of the doctrine of the ascension... Um, when I was a, a pastor in Pennsylvania, 
I was in uh, uh, our denomination's presbytery there was called the Ascension Presbytery. The reason it was called the Ascension Presbytery is that when that presbytery began, R.C. Sproul was a part of that presbytery. He was up at Ligonier, Pennsylvania at the time. For those of you that don't know of him, he, he is a theologian now with the Lord, but uh, has had a huge influence on uh, untold thousands of people throughout his ministry. But uh, they were trying to pick a name for the presbytery. And, and his, his statement was, the, we need to call it Ascension Presbytery. And like Sproul always tended to do, he had just arguments that were impossible to argue against if somebody else wanted to, to name it something else. And, and, but, but his first argument was, I think that's the most ignored doctrine in, in all of theology. But it is so essential. And then uh, I have to tell you what his last argument was. Um, and if we're called the Ascension Presbytery, we will always be first in the list. <laughs> I think that's what won everybody over. Oh, okay. Well, then, you know, we'll, we'll, be, called, we'll be called that. Well, I, when I heard, and I wasn't there for that. I came into the Presbytery a little bit later. But, but when I heard that, it, it dawned on me, you know, I think he's right. And from then on, I have preached on it every year around the, the time we call Ascension Sunday because it's such a, a beautiful doctrine of what took place. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things. Uh, notice how different this is from the way the resurrection took place. No one saw the actual resurrection, right? Other than angels. No, nobody was there to, to see it. But what they did see is they all saw evidence of the resurrection, all those that became witnesses of the risen Lord. Because he walked around for 40 days and he appeared and he taught and he ate with them and, and so on. So there was that evidence. So the, the question might come, well, why, why, didn't, they just, why didn't he just do the, the ascension in, in secret like that too? Why was it necessary? Well, think about, what if, what if the ascension had taken place and nobody had seen it? So what you have is, is one day, Jesus is here and he's walking around and then nobody sees him again and maybe his disciples might say, well, he must have ascended or he told us he would ascend. But what, what would have happened? Well, the rumors, I mean, we would still have the theories. Well, he was killed or he ran away or he was kidnapped or, or you know, or he died and they never found him and, and that, you know, all of those things could have taken place. So instead... We have a group of people who didn't go there to see the ascension. They weren't expecting it. And by the way, that's one reason you can argue this wasn't about group hysteria. When, when, 
when group hysteria takes place, typically, that's going to be when people go to a place expecting to see something and they all kind of go, do you see it? Yeah, I saw it. Yep. Yeah, I saw it too. And that's sometimes these appearances of various people and, and so on. That's the kind of thing that can happen. But here, nobody was expecting the ascension. They were there listening to him. In fact, they were still asking questions. Okay, so are you going to tell us when you're going to come back and so on? He, he answers that and then... And they're left there. I mean, I would love to have been, you know, somewhere near where Jesus was while he was going, I'm sure I would have been looking up too, but to see the looks on their faces, you know, and then just standing there until they were addressed. He disappeared, but he disappeared in in front of them so that they could all testify what took place. Nothing else happened. He ascended into heaven, but here's the last thing he said is he's coming back. Kind of like he went. So why is the ascension so important? The ascension was the completion of the resurrection. If the resurrection is of first importance, that shows you how important the ascension is. It's it's the completion of it. So what did he do? He ascended in order to take up his work as our high priest. Here's what it says in Hebrews, and I could have read practically any verse in Hebrews and and, uh, had the same message, which is about his his high priesthood. But in Hebrews 8, verse 4, it says, uh, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts, gifts according to the law. So it's saying it's necessary for him to be where he is. And then Hebrews 9, 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. In other words, he didn't enter into a, a temple that, that somebody built which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. I'm going to use this verse again in a minute. So everything the high priest in the Old Testament had done was just a foreshadow of pointing to what Christ was now in the ascension going to do. And that's why he needed to enter into heaven. And then further, he ascended into heaven in order to send the Holy Spirit. We talked about this when we went through John, but let me remind you in John 16, verse 7, I have said these things to you, and sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Remember? They, how could it be to our advantage that you go away? No, Lord, that's not to our advantage. And then he answered, For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. The Helper is the Holy Spirit. 
But if I go, I will send him to you. So he ascends. That's Acts 1, Acts 2. He sends the Holy Spirit in power. The day of Pentecost. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. So what's he doing sitting down? Ephesians 1, verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So it's talking about him being seated in the heavenly places. But again, it's strange that he's sitting down. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Pastor Rattray, sitting right here in the front row, um, preached, and he was preaching about uh, the the first part of Jesus' life, and I was listening to the sermon, actually, while I was preparing this, and it was an excellent sermon. But he said probably six or seven times, Jesus is standing for you. So I caught him in the hall this week, and I said, so... Is Jesus standing or is he sitting? (laughs) And I think, I may be mistaken, but I think his first words were, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. And I was just giving him a hard time. I was was about to tell him how much I appreciated the message. And uh, here's the thing. I had to ask myself that question because... Every time I preach about the ascension, I always bring in the account of Stephen being martyred when the heavens are opened up. He gets a glimpse of heaven, and it says Jesus was standing for him. It says it twice in that passage. So I always make that point, and yet here we say he's seated, and and. In Scripture passage after passage, it says that he's seated. So let's talk about it. Jesus being seated in heaven is a fulfillment of the Old Testament as well. Psalm 110 Verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He is sitting there until the Father makes all of his enemies his footstool. So I want to stipulate a, a, a couple of things. If you need Jesus like Stephen needed Jesus, He's standing for you. You know, in Revelation, it even talks about him walking around. And and I'm not at all worried whether 
He's standing or seated or walking. I don't think he's limited by any of that. Jesus is in exactly the right place right now for whatever his people need. So we don't need to worry about that. But let's think about that phrase about him being seated. I, like, I, I cut my grass every week. And I don't mind cutting my grass. Now, I don't have a, a huge yard or anything like that, but even when I had a bigger yard, I didn't mind it. And, and here's why. Some of you have heard me explain this, and Connie could tell you exactly why I don't mind it. I, I cut and I trim and I edge because when, when I get to the end of doing that task, even though it, I have to do it again the next week, it is one of the few things, maybe the only thing, but one of the few things that I've done that week where I can say, I can see what I've done here. <laughs> In my work, working with people, you don't see end results very, very often. And even, you know, when I, when I work on a sermon, if somebody says to me, well, are you ready? My answer almost always is going to be, well, I'm as ready as I'm going to be. Because there comes a point where I just have to stop. I, I'm, I can't finish because I could keep going, keep going and working on it more and more and more. And so I, I don't mind the yard. Now, at the door, you don't need to say, well, if you like that, come on over to my yard. <laughs> but here's what I do when I get done, after I've admired it. I sit down. Why? It's finished. I finished it. Now, I want you to, to think of that in terms of why the Scripture in so many places talks about him being seated. Because he was done. Now, he's still working. But he was done done with what he needed. Listen to Hebrews 10. By that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service. You see the contrast? The priests stand up offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Him sitting down reminds us he doesn't have to stand up and keep making sacrifices. He doesn't have to go to the cross again because what he did on the cross, he finished his work. And then he sat down on our behalf. 
real quickly. Look where he's sitting. He's sitting at, at the right hand, the place of power and strength, the place of authority, the place of honor. Remember in, in the New Testament, the mother's request that her son be able to sit at the right hand of Jesus in the kingdom. Jesus is sitting as our perfect prophet, priest, and king at the right hand of the Father. And he's the one, he's the one with all authority, and then he says, all authority, I'm given to you. I have it. I'm passing it on to you. Look who he's talking about. John, 1 John chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's talking to the Father. He has direct access because at his death, the veil in the temple that divided man from God was symbolically torn from top to bottom. He has direct access. And, and I, I, I think there are times where he's, he's in that seat of power and he stands as our advocate for us, as Pastor Rattray reminded us. And then Hebrews, look who he's talking about. He's talking about us. I read to you earlier from Hebrews 9, but in Hebrews 7, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Listen to this quote. The presence of Messiah at God's right hand means that for his people, there was now a way of access to God more immediate and heart-satisfying than the obsolete temple ritual had ever been able to provide. The fact that he's at the Father's right hand gives us direct access. You don't go through me or any other human being. We, as his people, by faith, go directly to him. I want to read to you from Romans chapter 8, and I want to ask you to, to bow your heads while I read this so that you can focus upon this. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is the, at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And then it gives the application. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
O Lord our God, whatever happens to us in this life, whatever trial we go through, whatever discouragement we experience, whatever fear we may have, thank you that we can know that Jesus is in his place where he belongs at your right hand and whatever is happening in our life, that will never, ever change. Will you comfort us with that? We pray in Jesus' precious name, amen.